Okay. <laughs> hey guys, welcome. Thank you guys for your patience. Um, before we get started, I want to give you. Oh, sorry. A little louder, please. I'm clipping. Here we go. Can you hear me? No. You guys just need to come closer. This, were y'all Baptists here? We're all gonna be in the back of the, the back of the church. Hey, hey, it's okay. I'm Baptist. It's fine. <laughs> we don't know him. We picked him up on the way over. <laughs> Okay, so, uh, well, I'll, I'll try to talk as loud as I can, uh, but what we're going to do right now is we have a podcast called Ask Away, uh, and we're actually going to record live. We're not actually going to be live, we're recording live, so some of this stuff is going to sound like we're recording for a radio show, but because we are. So, uh, but uh, we, we're going to start off with, uh, with just, you know, pray over our time together, um, and uh, then we'll get started. Oh, sorry, sorry, yes. So um, the way we got the questions uh, were from, uh, we had some Twitter, and then we also had candy for questions. So some of you guys went to our booth, and uh, I bribed you uh, for some really good questions. Uh, some of them were really good. Some of them were just moderately good. But we, So we, we sifted through all the questions, and then we picked uh, the, the, the ones that we thought would be a blessing to all of you guys. So, uh, so it, this, this, these questions came from you guys. So I'm going to pray for us. Dear Lord, just thank you so much uh, just for the opportunity for us to get together, uh, to share this beautiful day and this beautiful festival. Uh, thank you for the brothers and sisters here. Um, let us just do everything for your glory and for your honor. Uh, just bless this time. Anoint Vince and Joe. Uh, give them your words, not their own, Lord. And in Christ's name, amen. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a live recording of Ask Away with Vincent Jovitali, straight from Creation Fest Northeast 2018. I am your host, Michael Davis. Where did we come from? Where are we headed? What is the meaning of life? How should we live? We all have deep questions. How we answer those questions means absolutely everything. But before we get started, Joe, could you tell all these wonderful people what the heart is behind Ask Away and why they should tune in weekly? Well, hi, everyone. Thanks for turning up during your nap time. I'm really jealous of the people in the hammocks. I think next time we should request to have them up here. They look super comfortable. Um, but yeah, so we've been doing this podcast, Ask Away, for about eight months now. And really, we started it because we just want to care about people's questions. I have a friend called Rachel. And when Rachel was 10 years old, she asked her mom this question. She said, Mom, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And her mom's answer was, Rachel, don't be difficult. And that was really the last question that my friend Rachel ever asked about the Christian faith. And now she's doing a PhD. She's one of the smartest atheists that I know. But I think it all stems from the fact that somebody didn't take her question seriously. And I think we're seeing this a lot kind of across the church. Some churches do great at this, but I think very often we find in the church it's not a safe space for people to have the freedom to ask their questions, to raise the doubts, the things that you're struggling with about Christianity. It's something like 70% of young people when they when they head off to college who grow up in a Christian home actually um, walk away from faith during those college years. Before we get started again, um... Um, I, I really want to make sure that we that everyone here understands what exactly that we do. Uh, so before we get started, Vince, could you explain what apologetics is for those who don't understand what it is? Yeah, sure. And thanks everyone for being here. Uh, with Joe speaking last night and me speaking this morning, if no one had shown up this afternoon, we would have been uh, pretty discouraged. So appreciate you all being here. Uh, apologetics, I think Joe said it really well. 
that apologetics is primarily just about taking people's questions seriously. And there's a couple of reasons why we do that. One, we think that the answer to every question is something true. And we think that all truth is grounded in God. If that's the case, if the answer to every question is something truth, and if all truth is grounded in God, then every question is a gift. Because every question is an open door to share something which is true, which is actually sharing something about who God is and what God has done. So that's one reason that we're passionate about taking people's questions seriously. The other reason, I think, is just because asking questions is how you get to know someone. You know, if you met a friend at Creation Fest this year and you want to get to know them well, what do you do? you ask them good questions about themselves and you're not satisfied with the superficial answers. You dig into even the deep questions, even the parts of who they are that other people avoid. That's how you get to know someone well. So really taking questions seriously is part of our worship of God. We don't need to be afraid of questions. It's part of how we get uh, to know him well. Oftentimes uh, people associate apologetics, uh, the word that Michael used with 1 Peter 3.15. And it says, always be prepared to give an answer, that's the Greek word apologia, so always be prepared to give an answer or a defense to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. It's a beautiful verse, a really rich verse, uh, and a really challenging verse as well. One, because it tells us to be prepared for people's questions. Uh, and just to give you a, a little example, one of my colleagues uses, if you knew today you were told you're gonna to get an interview for your absolute dream job. And then they wrote to you and they said, and these are the exact questions that we will ask you at the interview, what would you do? You'd take the time to prepare, to study, to have responses to those questions. And I think the reality is, if I ask you right now, what are the top five questions that you hope a non-Christian will never ask you about your faith because you would have no idea how to respond? I see people smiling. Those questions immediately come to mind. This verse is asking us to be prepared to give a response. And the other challenging thing about this verse, it says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. The verse just assumes that a lot of people are going to be asking us about the hope that we have, because they're going to be seeing something distinctive in our lives. They're going to be seeing a hope which is not the normal hope that we find in our culture, and they're going to be asking us, where does that come from? So that's a challenge to every one of us, a bit about apologetics. Excellent. Thanks, Vince. Uh, so now we're going to go into the user-submitted questions. This question is from Rosalia. Uh, and, and by the way, if I butcher anyone's name, I apologize. Um, how did God make himself? Rosalita, great question. You probably don't know this, but that's actually the number one question Googled about God most years. How did God make himself, or was God made, or how was God created? The number one Googled question. Uh, it's one that I relate to. When I was about seven, my brother and I, we used to put uh, letters, often paper plates, in the chimney for Santa to whisk away, uh, telling him what we wanted for Christmas. And I was kind of philosophically minded as a kid, and so one year what I wrote on a paper plate and I left it in the chimney for Santa to take away was, Dear God and Santa, was God ever born? And I like how I thought that if God didn't have the answer, you know, surely Santa would at least. So, Dear God and Santa, was God uh, ever born? So it, it's a great question. Many people uh, ask this question. Let me just say a couple things to it. Uh, 
first of all, if someone asks you that question, okay, God created the universe, well, who created God? Well, you can ask the question in return as well. If somebody thinks that we were created by the universe, you can also ask back, for instance, to an atheist, well, who created your creator, the universe? And they may not have an answer to that question either. So that's one thing to keep in mind. A second thing to keep in mind is that, and just follow me for a second on this, you don't need an explanation of your explanation in order for your explanation to be a good explanation. You don't need an explanation of your explanation in order for your explanation to be a good explanation. Isaac Newton could have been looking at the fact that things fall from the sky and he could come up with the theory of gravity and that could be an excellent theory. And if someone said to him, oh yeah, well where did gravity come from? He could just say, I don't have a clue. I don't have the foggiest idea and yet that was still an excellent, excellent theory, an excellent explanation for what he was observing. And so God is an excellent explanation for the design that we see all around us and that is true regardless of whether we can respond to this question one more thing i would say about this the other reason that you don't need a response to that question is because we don't believe in a created god we don't believe in a made god and the question assumes that in fact created gods are idols and we would say that we don't actually believe in them we believe in an uncreated god now if someone says but wait a minute you said the universe requires an explanation. Why doesn't God require an explanation? Here's the answer. The universe requires an explanation because it had a beginning. And as of about 60 years ago, I guess now more like 80 years ago, science would agree with that fact that the universe has a beginning. It didn't always agree with that, and now it does. And a lot of people resisted that conclusion initially because it seemed to be so consistent with the Bible, right at the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning. If something has a beginning, then it went from, there was a change that took place. It went from not existing to existing. And it is that change that requires an explanation. God never didn't exist, so there was no change. And so we don't need an answer or an explanation to that question the same way we do if we're talking about the universe. A bit of a technical question to start with, but I hope that's helpful if you get that question, which is actually asked by many people at the top Google question about God. Okay, excellent. This question is from Regan. How can we be sure that the miracles in the, Bibles actu the Bible actually happen? All right, I'll give this one a start, and then, and then you jump in, Joe. Uh, this is something I wrestled with a lot. How can we be sure that the miracles in the Bible happen? Maybe you can speak more specifically to that. I might talk initially just about how can we believe there could be the miraculous in the first place? Before I was a Christian, my assumption was Christianity was the crazy option because it claimed all of these miracles. And then science was the sober, rational, reasonable option. I've really come to think differently about that, and here's why. I call this the normality of the supernatural. If you ask the question, what is the big picture explanation for the universe? Where did all of this come from? There are only three options. Number one, God created it. And I might just put my hand up and say, hey, that's a pretty remarkable, extraordinary option. But let's look at the other alternatives. Criticism without alternative is empty. What are the other alternatives? Number two, the universe just popped into existence for no reason whatsoever. Well, wow, that's an incredible alternative. 
that's a crazy option. The physical stuff in our everyday lives doesn't generally just pop in and out of existence. If it doesn't now, why should we think that it did then? Or a third option, third alternative. The universe has just always existed, extending infinitely back in time, but again, without any explanation whatsoever of why that's the case. Well, again, I think that's an absolutely remarkable, extraordinary option. And here's the reality, which is sometimes helpful to point out to someone. Those are the only three options. You only have three options for how you explain all of this, and every one of them is extraordinary, not just the Christian response. And I was reminded of this a while back. I got an email from someone. I was talking to them as they were seeking faith. I was trying to deal with some of their objections. They wrote me an email, and at the bottom of the email, as if to trump all the other objections, they wrote, nor can I believe in a virgin birth. And I began to draft an email back, trying to explain why maybe you could believe in a virgin birth, and then it dawned on me. I thought to myself, wait a minute, they already do. I believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, but an atheist believes in the virgin birth of an entire universe. And Stephen Hawking, the famous Cambridge physicist, he says the universe will create itself out of nothing. A virgin birth of an entire universe. And so sometimes we need to recalibrate the conversation simply by asking a question back to someone. You know, somebody says to us, how could you possibly believe in miracles? You know, it's so miracle, it's so miraculous to think that this infinite God created the universe. Well, don't be afraid to ask a question back. And to just say, well, how do you think the universe came to be? And there are only those three options. Every one of them is absolutely extraordinary. So I'm more inclined to think not that there's not a supernatural realm, but that there's not a natural realm. I mean, right now, I'm, you and I, we're sitting on a rock that's rotating at 1,000 miles an hour. It's flying around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour. It's being hurled through a, a galaxy that's hurling through the universe at over a million miles an hour in a universe 100 billion light years in size. I mean, absolutely extraordinary. Sometimes we need to just open our eyes and say, actually, the miraculous is possibly the norm, not something that we should be so skeptical about. That's great. And when it comes to the question of what about miracles in the Bible, sometimes you might think we're going to have a bit of a tougher time with this one, right? Because actually, although the archaeological and historical evidence for what takes place in the Bible is actually pretty strong when you look into it and Biblical studies is my particular background. And when it comes to miracles, you're gonna have a harder time several thousand years later, right? Even if a miracle did happen, how would we know? How would we show that or prove it? Interestingly, you do have a couple of cases, like for example, um, Jericho is really interesting to me. The destruction of Jericho, because when archeologists excavated that, they actually found to their surprise that rather than the walls falling inwards as they would if you were being besieged or attacked from the outside, the way that they fell um, doesn't actually make any kind of sense. And so the only way they can explain it is to say, oh, it must have been an earthquake that destroyed the walls of Jericho before everyone else came rushing in. And whereas obviously scripture says, you know, they walked around it seven times and the walls fell down. So I always find that one really interesting just as a kind of ancient example. But in general, this isn't going to be the kind of thing you can prove from archaeology or history. Did miracles happen? The, the bigger question, as Vince has already pointed to, is, is it possible for miracles to happen? If, if God exists, then of course it is possible for miracles to take place. But there is one miracle that the Christian faith really relies and rests upon. And actually, it's really important to us as Christians that we can have evidence that this miracle took place. And that is the miracle of the resurrection. 
Because you know, if the, the resurrection didn't happen, then this whole thing is a waste of time and completely pointless. Paul himself writes about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ was raised. And if Christ wasn't raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. And more than that, we're found to be false witnesses about God because we've testified about him that he raised Christ from the dead. So the question for us, I think, is do we have any evidence for the resurrection? And actually, I think it's amazing how much you can say about this. The reason Vince became a Christian at university was precisely because he started looking into the historical evidence for the resurrection. And this is what we can say historically. Even if you think you're somebody who's like, I'm not even going to trust the Bible as a reliable source. What, do, what are the two facts we absolutely know from history that took place in the first century about Christianity? One of them is this, that Jesus died on a cross. That's something we don't just know from the Bible itself. We also know that from Roman and Jewish historians. We know Jesus died on a cross. And so you might call that part one of Christianity. And then part three of Christianity, we know that there was an eruption of the movement of the early church of Christians um, that started you know, in Palestine, but spread across the ancient world. So the question is, historically, how do you get from part one to part three? Because we know those things historically did happen. But it's really weird to have the leader of a movement who's making all these big claims about being God suddenly die tragically on a cross. You know, usually when that happens, it's game over, movement over, all the disciples give up, they bail on the thing, they run away, they're like, you were wrong. They're disillusioned, they're depressed. And we see the disciples do that, don't we? They run away when Jesus dies, thinking game over. So then what explains this dramatic um, eruption of Christianity across the ancient world? And you may not want to put the resurrection in as your part two, as the explanation, but I guess our question for you would be this, if not the resurrection, then what? How else do you account for the history that we really know happened? And people have come up with different theories to try and explain this, to try and get around the resurrection. The most popular one for a long time in biblical scholarship was something called legendary development. You know, the idea that, you know, people knew Jesus and he was just like a really good guy. He was a great teacher, but then he died and the stories grew and they got exaggerated until finally, like a century later, it, it became this big myth. And suddenly people are going around saying Jesus claimed to be God, but he never did. It just, it just became a big lie. It, it got spread around. It's a legend. And so for a long time, people were saying this, but actually over the last few decades, this theory has been completely destroyed in scholarly literature. And the reason for that is because when you look at the actual historical evidence, it turns out this idea of Jesus being God wasn't something that came later in Christianity, but actually it's one of the very earliest beliefs that Christians held to. In fact, this very same passage in 1 Corinthians 15, and when Paul says, what I received I passed on to you as the first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was raised, that he was buried, that he was raised, on the third day according to the scriptures and then he goes on but that passage scholars now know to be an early christian creed which is actually dated to within two to three years of the death of jesus so what what this all means is that there just isn't time for legend to develop usually historians say it takes two to three generations for a legend to become established but the disciples were claiming the people who knew jesus who saw him with their very own eyes they're the ones going around saying that not only is he God, but that he was raised from the dead. That leaves us with a couple of other alternatives here. Then you might say, okay, well, maybe the disciples were saying this. Maybe it's not legend. Maybe they're just a bunch of liars. Maybe they just made the whole thing up, you know, because they wanted to like be 
like religious gurus or leaders of some kind of big church movement and get the status and the claim that would come with that. And that's an interesting idea, but I think you can all see the massive problem with that idea, which is, of course, you know, telling a, a, a joke or a hoax that might be fun for a while, but no one dies for it. No one, no one dies for something that they've just made up, and yet 10 out of the 11 of Jesus' remaining disciples, they did die for their faith. And can you imagine the guts it takes to stand, in, to stand by your faith when you're about to be like thrown to the lions or stoned to death or crucified? You know, to, to face that death and to do it with confidence when you're a first century Jew who believes in God and believes you're gonna face judgment after you die, you have to be really convinced by what you're claiming. And what they're claiming is that they themselves saw Jesus rise from the dead. The evidence that Joe's talking about, I just think is utterly remarkable. And it was a big part of my own journey to faith. It was part of Michael's uh, journey to faith as well. And during that journey, when I was encountering this type of evidence for the resurrection, I thought this can't be right. You know, naturalistic, atheistic scholars, they must have other ways of explaining this. And so I arranged meetings with the two top New Testament professors at the time in the religion department at Princeton University. And I said, look, this is what I'm reading and this is what I'm seeing. How do you explain this? And one of them glanced towards a mass hallucination theory, which is completely discredited. It's not given any respect within the literature. And the other one told me that as a historian, he simply wasn't interested in the question. As soon as we started to talk about miracles, he just had a blanket assumption that that couldn't have taken place. My encouragement is don't assume, especially if you're here, you're in high school, you're in college, uh, your teachers, your professors may think differently than you with respect to your Christian faith. Don't assume that just because they disagree with your faith that they actually have good answers to the questions that you might have. And have the courage to put those questions to them and say, hey, look, if you don't explain the explosion of the greatest movement of all time by the resurrection, what do you? explain it by and you may find that they don't have the answers that you thought they might just one last thing that i would say on this idea of miracles is that i don't think we give enough credit something that robbie says often to the miracle of conversion you know sitting up here as the person that i am sinner that i am you know i still i shudder to think of the man i would be of the husband that i would be without christ's work in my life i know michael uh would say the same, I know Joe would say the same uh, as well. And, and many of you have that miracle in your life. You know, I was somebody who would never, ever ask for forgiveness before I became a Christian. Now I'm someone who delights in asking for forgiveness. What a radical change that has made in the context of mine and Joe's marriage. You know, sometimes I think if I woke up tomorrow and I could run as fast as Usain Bolt, I'd say that's a miracle. But the reality is that what God has done in my life in a spiritual way, uh, in a deeper way, is just as miraculous as that. And you know, what's easier to to see a transformation physically, like being able to run faster, or to see a transformation morally, psychologically, deeply in terms of the person that you are? I think that's the greatest miracle of all. And one question, I'll leave you with this question on this on this topic, but a question we love to ask of people is this. Have you ever experienced something that has made you think there might be a God? And we love asking people that question. And if you wait a few moments and don't save the person and let them actually think about it, you will hear some stories that you cannot believe. People will tell you unbelievable things. And you'll say, that happened to you? And you don't believe in God? Let's talk about that. That has God's stamp of approval all over it.
Okay, excellent. Uh, this is uh, so. So basically, we're we're out of time. We're going to answer one more question because we're running late. But if you guys want to stick around, we're just going to keep going. So uh, this 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 question came from awesome. Uh, this question came from Sarah. Uh, this is actually this question. I, I would say from from being around these types of open forums, this is the number one question that I've heard from young people, and it's, and it goes like this. This is from Sarah. Why is there only one way to God? Yeah, this is a very consistent question. And I think one of the assumptions behind the question is sometimes, if I'm going to say that Jesus is the only way to God, if I'm going to say that Jesus is the truth, then that means I'm going to have to say that other people are wrong. And we don't like having to say that other people are wrong. We're hoping that maybe we can find some way to just say that everyone's right and that we don't need to disagree with anyone because I think in our culture we've lost the ability to disagree in love. And so we just try to avoid it altogether. It is unavoidable. Uh, one of our colleagues, Abdu, he'll be speaking uh, tomorrow night, actually, and he's on his way here now. But he, he recalls a conversation that he had with a student at a university, and the student said, I don't think it's my place to disagree with anyone. And after you said, sure you do. And he said, no, I don't. And after you said, you just did. <laughs> right? It's not possible to live a life that doesn't disagree with someone. Even the so-called inclusivists who want to say that everyone can find their way to God, no matter what you believe. Well, they exclude the exclusivists. They exclude the people who say that there's one way to get to God. So just as a starting point on this topic, uh, it's impossible to live life affirming that everyone has the truth, and that's in all areas of thought, uh, and so it's not surprising that it's in this area of thought as well. I think one of the one of the thoughts here as well is we just kind of, there's this assumption in our culture that says, um, actually, although religions, they, they look superficially different, actually they're fundamentally the same. Whereas actually I think what you, what you really find is the reverse is going on. The more you dig into it, the more you'll discover that actually religions are, um, they are uh, fundamentally different, even though they, they, they look superficially the same. So for example, even just coming to the question of salvation, how do you get to God? How, how are you saved? I spoke about this a little bit last night, but, but every other way of seeing the world will tell you it's gonna come down to what you do. Um, if, you're, uh, if you're Muslim, it's the view that actually, it's kind of like a set of balancing scales, right? It's, you know, you're, do your good deeds that way your bad deeds, because if, if they do, then you'll go to heaven. If not, then you're in trouble. And you might uh, look at Hinduism, which operates on the law of karma, which basically says you reap what you sow, and depending on the life you live now, you're then reincarnated in a better or worse life. But that is the judgment you get for the life you've lived coming down to works. Even Buddhism, you know, Buddhism looks incredibly peaceful and chill, doesn't it? But actually that still comes down to the following the Eightfold Path, which is all about doing the right things. It's still coming down to what you can do. So every other worldview that you're gonna see, that's the approach. And I was, we, was, uh, we had some students of ours who were speaking uh, with a Muslim who was um, driving a taxi for them a little while ago, and they were asking him what he thought about Judgment Day. And, he, and, and if he was scared of it, and he said, I'm absolutely, I'm terrified. He said, ask any Muslim, and I'll tell you they're terrified because you never know if we've done enough. I mean, you never know if you've done enough to be good enough for God, and what a terrifying way to live. But I think the assumption going on here is this idea that somehow, as human beings, we're capable of just being good enough, actually that we can live right by ourselves, and surely that's just gonna be enough for God. I was speaking a little while ago um, in a village in England and a 70 year old 
woman came up to me who'd been in church every Sunday of her life. And she was really mad after I finished speaking. And she came up to me and she pointed her finger in my face and she said, I'll have you know, I've never sinned a day in my life. And I was like, wow, she's like, Jesus, you know. Um, but, this, but this woman, I think she was saying something that really reflects what most of us think in our culture. Psychologists call this illusory superiority. You know, we all have this idea that we're doing better than we are. If you look at different studies people have done, it's amazing, whatever area of life, whether it's behavior or intelligence or performance, people always rate themselves as statistically better than average. Apparently, one survey showed that people tend to rate themselves as 90% better than average, which really is a statistical impossibility. Um, but, but because of this idea, you know, we, we compare ourselves to other people and we always just think, I'm not doing that bad. But actually, we're comparing ourselves to the wrong thing. What, who we need to be comparing ourselves to is God. And can we ever really be good enough for God? You might say, well, why doesn't God just forgive everybody anyway? Isn't that what the loving thing to do is? But actually, that question is really naive when it comes to justice. It doesn't take seriously the ways that we wrong and abuse and violate people in this world. But God cares about justice, and I think that's a really important part of his nature. So when I think about this question, how can there only be one way to God? To, to me, the more I think about it, the more I think, you know what? When the Bible says, God, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? Honestly, nobody should be able to get to God. So what blows my mind is not that there's just one way to God, but it's that there is a way to God. And the fact is the only reason there's a way to God is because God made the way. That we just couldn't do it by ourselves. We needed somebody to do it for us. But if you think that's exclusive and it leaves people out, I actually want to say that is the most inclusive message in the world because that is an offer for everybody. Unlike other worldviews that are saying, hey, some people are better than others and some people are going to get there depending on how well they've done, but other people just aren't good enough. Christianity is like the ultimate leveler. It says we're all rubbish. None of us can get there by ourselves. We're equal in that respect. But this offer is for every single person in the world. And I think that is an absolutely incredible hope. That's really good. I love how you turn that on its head. You know, why is there one way to God? Because God made a way. And how amazing is that? You know, if there was 10 ways, we would want 11. You know, how amazing it is that God made a way, even though that meant the death of Jesus. And, you know, you have to question sometimes the motivation behind the question. You know, if somebody gave their life for you, if someone died for you, it would be pretty weird to ask them, hey, why did you only die for me once? Right? That's not the response of gratitude that should be the natural response. And so just as Joe said, how amazing is it that God made a way? Sometimes people phrase this question in terms of saying, why is Jesus the only way to heaven? In response to that question, I say, because Jesus is heaven. Sometimes we have this wrong understanding of heaven or eternal life. We think primarily it's going to be a theme park. And if we do enough good things, then we just get a ticket into the theme park. And we go to the theme park and we go our separate ways. It's not about relationship with God. That's actually a much more Islamic understanding of the afterlife. But within Christianity, eternal life is to know God. It is to be in right relationship with Jesus. And so the reason Jesus is the only way to heaven is because Jesus is heaven. That is the thing we were made for. That is the very best thing for us and what we're intended for for all eternity. Not just to be in a theme park with cheap pleasures, but to be in a deep and meaningful relationship, the relationship that we are intended for. That's great. Okay, this question is from Andrew. Um, when believers get ill and pray for healing, why doesn't God always answer? It's tough to believe that God is real when the Bible says to pray, but nothing happens. 
Yeah, Andrew, this is such a good question, and thank you for asking it. And I know that this is a sensitive question because there'll be a lot of people here who have prayed for people to be healed, and maybe sometimes you've seen it and sometimes you haven't, and it's really hard when people you love and you pray for them to be healed and they're not healed, and you, you just find yourself wondering, where is God in that? And I, I, I once spent a year living in Uganda, and every week we would go and pray for sick people in the hospital, and and, and during that year, I saw God do an incredible miracle, and it was it was astonishing. And, and so this is the hard thing about this question, right? Because because the flip of it is, you know, the fact that we do see miracles happen, and I have seen miracles happen, also is reason for me to believe in God. And yet at the same time, as I rejoiced in the miracles that we did see, it, it also raised the question in me: Well, what about all the other times that we prayed and we didn't see miracles? Because we went in week after week and we were praying for sick people. So why were some of them healed? and not others. And I think the hard thing about this question is we'll turn it around on ourselves sometimes and you start questioning yourself and thinking, man, is this on me? Did I just not have enough faith that time? Did I not say the right magical words? Did I get it wrong? Did I just not muster up enough belief? And I just want to encourage you not to think that way about it because I think that turns uh, healing into something that becomes works-based, as if it's down to you, as if you have that power within yourself, as if you just work hard enough, you can make it happen. But we've been talking about grace, and grace doesn't just apply to salvation, it applies to the way we live the Christian life. And every time somebody is healed, that is an act of grace, that is an act of God, and we ask for it, and we believe for it, and we request that he will do it. But whether people are healed or not, that does come down to him. It's not on you, it's not your fault. And I just don't want anybody living under the shame of feeling like that or having been made to feel like that because I don't think that is true. Now, having said that, it's hard for us because we don't know the mind of God. And yet we have this really small picture of the time and space that we're living in. And in this time and space, when we lose somebody and it devastates your life, we're just thinking, how can this be the best thing, God? You allowed this to happen when you didn't have to allow it to happen. Why? Did it have to work out this way? And it's really hard for us to be able to answer that question. I don't think we can this side of eternity. But I think we have to have the perspective of realizing God is seeing such a bigger picture than we are, that there is a tapestry he is weaving throughout history and time that we're only getting glimpses of, that he is seeing the whole thing. And just one more thing I want to say to this, because a really dear friend of ours died last year of stomach cancer at 33 years old. He was called Nabil Qureshi. He was part of our team. And... Um, it was so hard because thousands, hundreds of thousands of Christians were praying, praying for him to be healed. And Nabil was really believing that he would be healed. And so was his wife. And and uh, it was just so hard when, when he actually died um, after so many people had been praying. But you know, when Vince and I began praying for his healing and we were crying out to God and, and we really believed, we know God, God could have healed him. We know sometimes God does heal. Um, but one of the things we strongly sensed of the Holy Spirit as we began to pray, we were crying out, God, would you save Nabil? And we just really sense in our spirits, God saying back to us, I already have. I already have saved him. You know, Nabil had this radical conversion from Islam to Christianity, and God pulled him out of that and into his kingdom. And the truth is, when we, even when people are healed in this lifetime, and it's a beautiful and miraculous thing, even so, they only go on to live a few more decades, and then they're going to die again anyway. So actually, the real miracle we need to be praying for is not the salvation of a physical life in this world, although I do think we should ask and desire that and pray for it. But actually, the ultimate thing is, are they saved for eternity? And that is the real miracle. And Jesus says, you know, those who believe in me uh, will live even though they die. And those who, who live believing in me, they will never die. And that's the promise we're ultimately holding on to here. Even as we're living in this tension of now and not yet, 
and the kingdom of God being, being here now, but also not always getting what we want to see in heaven. Um, but, but we're living in that space now where we're trusting actually God is doing the great miracle of bringing people to himself. And that is an eternal promise that I think is amazingly beautiful. And it's amazing that we've already um, gotten to see people who came to faith through the way that Nabil went through the suffering that he went through and the steadfastness of faith that he showed through the, those last two years of his life. We know of individuals who have come to faith because of that. And so God did heal Nabil, not in the timing that we had asked for, but in God's timing. And he did some other incredible things uh, in the meantime as well. Uh, one other thing I would I would just say about uh, the miracles. Well, first, it reminded me of it reminded me of this uh, young boy who said, said to his dad, who's a pastor, uh, why do you always pray before you speak? And the father said, well, I'm praying that God will give me something to say. And the boy said, well, why does God never answer your prayers? <laughs> and so I think this, it is one of the most challenging aspects of the Christian faith. But just one more uh, footnote to what Joe said. I just really encourage you, our colleague Cameron McAllister gave a devotional uh, just recently, and he had this phrase, he said, pray with your eyes open. Uh, I actually think God responds in miraculous ways to so many more of our prayers than we realize and that we give him credit for. I remember a story of someone who had come to faith through an introduction to Christianity course. The wife had, the husband was very upset about this, and so his plan was to write down her prayer requests for the next year, and then at the end of the year, he'd be able to point back to this list of prayer requests and say, look, none of them have come true. God doesn't exist, and then they wouldn't have to believe in God. Well, he wrote down those prayer requests faithfully for a year, and at the end of the year, he became a Christian. And I think very often, we're pretty good at asking God for things and then completely forgetting that we've even asked him for that thing and he comes through in a miraculous way and we never even are organized enough in our minds to give him the credit for what he's done. So I love the idea of journaling, of writing down what you've actually prayed for, of having a pattern of going back to that and saying, wow, I prayed for those things. I was praying with my eyes open. I can see what God has done and therefore I can give him glory because of it. Well, guys, uh, we are out of time. Vince, sum it up for us. Well, as you've heard, the main theme here is just to take questions seriously. Uh, God is big enough to handle our questions. We don't have to be afraid uh, to bring our questions uh, to him. And so, you know, we hope that you'll, you'll continue to do that and not think that any question is off limits. Sometimes I think we think of God almost like a parent who when we ask a question, the answer is because I say so. Uh, and that doesn't tend to be God's answer. I think he, he welcomes our questions he loves our questions. Take them seriously in your own life. Take other people's questions seriously. Ask your friends what their questions are about God. They have them. They're Googling them. Wouldn't it be better if they were asking them directly to you? And just one more encouragement I would give you. When you have taken someone's questions seriously, don't be shy about actually inviting them to Christ. It may seem very simple. But no matter how great a party you're throwing, no matter how much you tell people how great the party's gonna be, no matter how much you tell people how excited you are to go to the party, if you don't actually extend to them an invitation, it's unlikely that they're gonna show up at the party. And you know, just recently we were in Singapore, two people came up to me after an event, one named Kenneth, he started talking to me, he was a Christian. Then this young woman named uh, Jay Min, she started out by saying to me, I'm not a Christian yet. 
And I, I had to keep myself from smiling. You know, the way she said yet, it was just like a poster that just said, but will you invite me? And she asked me one difficult question. She came from a Taoist background. She was really worried about becoming a Christian because she thought, would this be unloving to my family? Will I not wind up with my family? I said to her, you know what? I sense that you're seeing Jesus as the truth. And if that's what you're sensing today, the most loving thing you can do for your family is to accept Jesus into your heart because his spirit, that same spirit that rose him from the dead is going to come within you, is going to begin to do an amazing transformative work in you and your family will begin to see Jesus in you and that is the best chance that they have of coming to know him and of you being with them for all eternity. That made sense to her and then I just simply asked her, would you like to give your life to Christ today? And this big smile erupted on her face and she said yes. And you know, who knows what her story would have looked like if you just, if I didn't ask just the simple questions. And the invitation should be a gift, even when someone's not ready to accept it. You know, if I give you an invitation to uh, our wedding and you can't make it for some reason, I have still honored you by giving you that invitation. So let's find ways to be able to offer the invitation to step into a relationship with Christ in ways that are not threatening to people, but offering people a great gift, making them feel honored, and making sure that every person knows when they are ready how to take that most significant step. Vincent Joe, thank you guys for joining me. Thank you all for listening. If you guys are interested in getting more of this, and we've got about 35 or 36 episodes on iTunes, uh, you can go to iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Uh, we did take the month of June off, but uh, the next episode is going to be coming out on Tuesday. So thank you again, guys, for joining. Bye. God bless. God bless.